Jesus experienced really stiff, bad opposition as he served the Father. And you know, he, he showed himself to be the Son of Man with power and grace. No man ever spoke like Jesus, and no man ever acted like Jesus. And yet his enemies refused to believe him. And as we're looking in the scripture right here, they're plotting to kill him. Now Jesus really is the son of man, a human being who is equal to God. This is written about in Daniel chapter seven, the only place where the son of man appears and Jesus really is that son of man. But you know, these men who are angry at Jesus, they're going to succeed. They're going to kill Jesus. What do you do with that? How would you like to live under a death threat? Well, because Jesus is human, he prays. And God gives him orders and directions and the strength to carry out those orders. Because you're human, you pray. That's what we're looking at this morning. And I'm reading in Luke 6 from verse 12. It says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray, and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And we'll leave it at that. Now, in verse 12 it says, it came to pass in those days. And those days were a hard and tough Time for Jesus. You don't think about that, do we? We just watch the chosen or the movies and watch Jesus kind of move through life. We don't think about the kind of pressure that he was under. The last chapter or so is about these teachers of the law called Pharisees, and they're having problems with Jesus. They ask him, why do you do this? Why do you do that? Why don't you do this? They don't like the answers they're getting. They're not open to considering Jesus' claims. They don't want to hear things they don't want to hear. So it wasn't Jesus' fault. Think about this for a second. He spoke graciously. He acted graciously. 
he proved what he said. He says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, get up, take up your bed, go home. And this paralyzed man gets up, takes up his bed, and goes home. That's pretty good. Or when he reasoned with these teachers of the law, he says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil? Is it lawful to save a life or to kill? These guys aren't even answering him. All they thought was, you know what? This guy is going to break the Sabbath by healing this guy. And they were outraged. So he heals a man on the Sabbath, and these people walk away going, how can we kill him? What is the best way to do this? Very hard opposition. And Jesus is well aware they're going to succeed. They're going to kill him. And knowing all these things, Jesus goes off to a mountain to pray. And this is how a real human being, a perfect human being, reacts to unfair opposition and enemies. Here's how you deal with everything that's going wrong right now. You pray. You know, he really is a human being who is equal with God the Father. And still, he prays. Don't you think that's interesting? Now, this very act of prayer is holy in and of itself. You know how he goes up to the mountain? That is to really get away from everybody. Nobody would go up there. It's too much work. You've got too much to do. You're not going to just huff and puff all the way to the top to look at the view and say, now i got to go back and milk the cows. Just That's not going to happen. You don't find tourists up there. Not like you find them today. Because they're all going to go up there in a bus and go look at the Sea of Galilee. But nobody is up there. So Jesus is getting away from disciples, from crowds, from masses of people. And the purpose is to draw near to God. And see, this is the idea of holiness, is separating yourself on the one hand, but then separating yourself to God on the other. And this, this idea of drawing near to God in prayer is holy. And you draw near to God to kind of align yourself with him, to unite with him, 
to draw close to him and seek his will and do what he wants. And you know, that explains to me why there is so much opposition to praying. You ever notice that? You want to pray, and suddenly there's all kind of reasons why you shouldn't pray. You got to do this, you got to do that. I notice it. When I want to pray, it's like, no, you're not. You're not going to pray. And I think, wow, real opposition. I think the devil opposes you drawing near to God. What do you think? Do you notice here that Jesus is praying urgently? That he's praying all night. It's a crunch time for him. Have you ever been in a crunch time? Do you remember how good it feels? You've got stress and pressure. And your situation requires action. That is, if you ignore this, it's not going to go away. It's only going to get worse. And so you have to do something. So Jesus is praying in a crunch time. And this is costly. Can you imagine Jesus staying up all night? He stays up all night because there isn't time during the day to do this. He doesn't have the luxury to say to his secretary, you know, hold all my calls and uh, I'll be back. He can't tell the crowds to go somewhere else. They're going to find him. So see, he's kind of pushed to take whatever time he can And it's nighttime, and he's up on a mountain, and he's praying until he gets an answer. And the crazy thing about this is that prayer takes time. I wish that prayer was like you put 25p in, and you get 25p out, easy peasy. But it doesn't work like that, does it? You pray. You pray some more. You keep on praying. You kind of go, oh. And here's the Son of God praying all night. Now, when does the sun go down? Gil? What do you think? Six, seven, eight? Something like that? When's the sun come up? Six? Twelve hours? Twelve hours of praying? Why doesn't he stop? Because he's not done yet. And then when the sun comes up, he's done whether he likes it or not. So, do you see that This is a crunch time, and he's praying, and 
He can't stop. He won't stop because he needs from God. You'd think that Jesus could get an answer right now. Don't you think? But he's praying, and he gives it 8 to 12 hours. Wow. You think about the Apostle Paul. He's praying about a thorn of the Satan in his flesh. And he prays three times about it because the first time, nothing happened. And the second time, nothing happened. And he's praying, God. Now, he's the Apostle Paul. Don't you think God would give him what he needs on the first bounce? Can you imagine him walking away and somebody says, how to go, Paul? And Paul goes, I don't know. Now, see, that's what I do. How to go, Rob? I don't know. I guess I have to pray some more. That's the thing about prayer. It takes time. Now, when Jesus is praying, God gives him what he needs. He gives him direction. His answer for Jesus is to go forward on his mission. The direction of God is that he choose 12 men and make them apostles. So we have to figure out what's an apostle. And first of all, an apostle is a messenger sent out on a mission. And this person, an apostle, represents the sender delivers the sender's message as if he were the sender himself. So it's kind of like a power of attorney, which I actually have too, just in case. You know, when your credit card goes bluey and somebody in the United States decides to cancel your card, you're couple thousand miles away. You can't do anything about it. And they don't care. So I actually have a power of attorney in Seattle who can walk into a bank as though that person were me. She actually pretends she's Joni. <laughs> and they don't know. But she walks in there and says, unclamp that card. And they have to do it as if it were me. That's pretty cool. That kind of saves your life when you can't just hop on a jet, fly to Seattle, and say, what is this? So that's what an apostle is supposed to do, actually embody the sender. And Paul spoke about this in Galatians chapter 1. He said that God was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. For Paul, that's what it meant to be an apostle, that Jesus was revealed in him. He says that's what God did. 
Now, the next point about an apostle is that he has the message from the sender. That's the message of the New Testament. An apostle had to be able to preach the message. They had to deliver it accurately, not change it. They had to know what they're talking about. Can't goof on it or say, gee, I don't know. Or send out some kind of a uncertain signal. You know, Paul says, if you don't blow the trumpet right, nobody's going to know what the trumpet is, is calling. You ever heard somebody pick up a trumpet who's never played a trumpet and blow on it? You know what that is? <laughs> That's a blat. That's a... And you listen to that and you go, is that attack or retreat? And the answer is, no. It's a noise. See, an apostle isn't supposed to pick up that trumpet and pretend he knows how to play it. When you hear an apostle, you hear somebody who knows exactly what they're doing. And an apostle had to know Jesus personally. In fact, be a witness of Jesus even from the baptism of John. The 12 guys that Jesus picks right here all heard John and they repented at the preaching of John. They were baptized by John. And they became witnesses of Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascending bodily into heaven. And they had to be so shaped and formed by Jesus and by his message that they would not change for any reason, even to save their life. There can be no swerving on this, because Jesus didn't change, even to save his life. Now, I have to say this. There are people today who call themselves apostles. And you know, they're supposed to display the same spirit of Christ who humbled himself and did not change the message even to save his life. In other words, Jesus suffered. But I noticed that apostles today who claim that term wear nice clothing, get the best of everything, and nobody's supposed to touch them. Touch not my prophets, my anointed ones. And they think, where's the spirit of Jesus in that? This idea of, I'm going to obey the Father and suffer and not change to the point of death. Where is the humility of Christ? See, people take that name apostle so that they don't have to suffer. 
Wow. You know, if you're listening to somebody who calls himself an apostle, I doubt they will influence you to become like Christ. And I think you're wasting your time. So in answer to Jesus' prayer, God says to Jesus, don't let them stop you. Multiply yourself times 12. Go forward with your mission. How do you like that for audacity? Jesus comes to the Father with a death threat. God says, go forward. Multiply yourself. So when day comes, Jesus calls his disciples and he picks 12 people because God told him to. Specified this one, not that one. That one, not this one. Look at the guys he chose and ask yourself, Are these guys like Jesus? Do they embody the Spirit of Christ? Simon, Andrew, James, John. Two sets of brothers. They're all of them fishermen, and they're all ordinary guys. They know how to fight with one another, And they can also get an idea. Wow, this could turn out great. Ambition. So James and John get their mom. And they say, go talk to Jesus. Please, Jesus, as a mother, could you have my boys sit on your left and on your right when you come in your glory? (laughs) Thanks, Mom. That was perfect. And the other 10 are angry because they didn't think about it. You know that Jesus nicknamed James and John sons of thunder? And he called them that. Oh, here comes the sons of thunder. Does that sound meek and mild like Jesus? He's saying, whoa, sons of thunder. Wow. Some of these guys we don't even know about, but we do know about Matthew, a tax collector who worked for the Romans. Simon the Zealot was at the opposite end of the scale. You may hear that the Zealots were a distinct political party who wanted to throw the Romans out of the land of Israel, but that's not really the case. They show up as a group just before the destruction of Jerusalem. But this idea of being a zealot goes back to the second century before Jesus, the Maccabean times, where it was important to have zeal for the word of God and the law of God and to be ready to fight for the word of God and to be ready to give your life for the word of God. 
So before Paul met Jesus, he was exceedingly zealous for the traditions of the fathers. And yet he was also at the same time, because of that zeal, destroying the church. So zeal for the things of God, that's, it's good, but it can go out of control. So Simon is zealous for the law of God, and there he is working with Matthew on the other end of the spectrum, who basically gave up everything that was Jewish, turned on his country, and he did it all to get rich. And he lost what it meant to be Jewish. He lost all his relationships, probably couldn't go into the synagogue, and probably, as far as he knew, he gave up the whole possibility of being saved. Because that's what happens when they kick you out of the church. But here's what Jesus does with all 12 of these guys. He draws a line under their past and says, that's the past. Now we have a new future. Whatever you were before is in the past. What's relevant is what I am going to make you now. You can see that Jesus is taking on a big job. Can you imagine the magnitude to take these guys who are ordinary, normal, fallible sinners and bring them to the point where they embody everything that he is so that they will be faithful unto death. Jesus is going to train them for the rest of his life, for the next probably three years. He's going to continue to train them for the rest of their lives. And like Jesus, they will suffer in humility to build up others. And they will never change. And Jesus is going to get them where they need to be. You know, it doesn't really depend upon them. Can you imagine? Gee, i got to be an apostle. What's an apostle? That sounds like fun. I'll just do it. This will be great. Are you able to go through the baptism that I'm able and drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Oh, yeah. We can do that. Do you know how to drink? Yeah, I know how to drink. Yeah, drinking. You can do it. You swallow it, right? Am I right? What a job Jesus has. But see, he's going to get them there. Not by power. Not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus is going to make them apostles. And every single one of them is going to be faithful except Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. But see, Jesus chose him also. 
you think, wow, why did he choose Judas? And the first answer is because the father told him to. It was an obedience to the father. And Jesus obeyed knowing that Judas was going to betray him. He knew the whole time. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus picked him knowing full well, this guy is going to betray me. But the second reason that Jesus chose Judas is in order to fulfill Scripture. Because it says in John 13, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. So you know, this is to fulfill Psalm 41, which David wrote. And it's part of prophecy fulfilled so that you know this is God. This isn't Lord of the Rings. This isn't a story that somebody made up. This is how you know this is the truth. Because God spoke it a thousand years before, and then he fulfilled it. This is how you know this is God at work. But another reason that Jesus chose Judas is to demonstrate the love and the patience of God. You know that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you're to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And Jesus practiced what he preached without anybody knowing it. Here's Judas. He's one of the 12 people closest to Jesus. That's what he picked them for. And to, to be with him as much as was humanly possible. He heard Jesus teach many, many times. He saw Jesus heal multitudes with power going out from him. 
he saw Jesus feed thousands of people, and he's one of the guys that picked up baskets full of bread scraps. He saw Jesus raise people from the dead, cast out demons, stop a storm that was in progress. You know, seeing miracles, seeing acts of healing does not make anybody a believer. Because Judas saw all that stuff. Now, Jesus didn't treat Judas differently from the other disciples. Isn't that interesting? Nobody had an inkling of who Judas was keying off of how Jesus treated him. It's like nobody ever says, gosh, Jesus is kind of harsh on Judas. You know, it's like he's got something, like he's bothered by Judas, or, or how come he treats him so coldly? What's Jesus' big problem with Judas? You know that Jesus actually warned Judas not to betray him? He warned him. He says, one of you is going to betray me. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. And he's telling Judas, I know what you're going to do. Don't do it. No one suspected that he was talking to Judas, no one suspected Judas was a traitor from the way Jesus treated him. Jesus loved him the way he loved all of them. So that means for over three years, Jesus loved his enemy with the love and patience of God. He did absolutely no wrong to Judas that Judas could say, well, you know, it's like he does this and he does this and this. That's like, what's that? So that he gets all kind of bothered and says, well, I'll show him. None of that. He absolutely loved Judas. So however Judas acted, it came out of his own heart and not as a result of some thing that Jesus provoked. That shows you how absolutely outrageous and unreasonable that betrayal was. So we're going to leave that there. But think about this. You're facing real opposition Things are going wrong. You know how things can break and go bluey, and there you are. You know how you can make mistakes, how you can fail, how you can sin, and you realize this is not a game, my life. The devil wants me dead. 
That's a real scary moment. I have felt that. I think, man, this is scary. And so you deal with opposition. Now what I do is I mope. You know what moping is? That's kind of like dead in the water. That's like getting hit real hard and you get the breath knocked out of you. You ever had that happen to you? I've done that to myself a couple of times. It's like, breathe. I can't. I've had all the breath knocked out of me. And you say, what am I supposed to do? I'm only human. There you go. You're human. Pray. Because here's where you realign yourself with God. And you remember, first of all, that God is not your enemy. Whatever else is going on, God loves you with the very love of God and with his patience. And you are not the toughest person that God ever brought to heaven. That honor belongs to somebody else, but not you. You might think you're the hardest person. You're not. But you know, this is your opportunity to get away from the opposition. And in my mind, it's kind of like, the round is done in the boxing match, and you get to go to your corner and flop there and get a rub down from your manager and a drink. And you get some coaching there. Like he says, watch out for that guy's right hook. And keep your guard up. And then he says, you got this. That's what you're doing when you're praying. The rub down. And you're getting what you need so that you can go out and do it again. Now, you know, you might even feel like I can't even pray. I can't even breathe. But there's ways to get around this. Like, why don't you get with a bunch of people who are praying? Sometimes being in a group of people who are praying kind of helps. The spirit of prayer enables you to loosen up and just say, God, help, which is one of the classic all-time prayers. Help. Fabulous four-letter word. And just being with people who are praying enables you to get into it and pray. That's one thing you can do. Or you can get with people. A few or a lot. Sometimes just getting away by yourself, like Jesus did. Take a walk. If you, if you, you, know, you close your eyes and you go right to sleep. Okay, take a walk. 
That's different than driving a car, where if you close your eyes, you will kill yourself. But you can close your eyes even when you're walking sometimes and get away with it. At least go where nobody else is going. Everybody with me? No. But you know, you have to give prayer time. Don't be discouraged if you're praying about stuff for a long time. If Jesus prayed for 12 hours, don't be surprised if you have to pray. If Paul prayed three times, don't be surprised if you have to keep praying about it. That's just the way it is. So don't get discouraged. Keep praying about it. Because God is going to answer. Prayer is God's answer right in your weakness. That's Jesus. That's apostolic. You're waiting on him and he says, this is what you do. And as you pray, God is going to give you back the breath that got knocked out of you. It's a fabulous feeling to just kind of, okay, everything's working again. I can breathe. I can do this. God is going to do that. He's going to help you to go forward in his plan for your life in spite of really bad opposition. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you know what we're going through. And you know what scares us. You know what stops us. You know what shakes us. So we wish we weren't here. We wish we were somewhere else. We wish, I wish I didn't have to go through this. Thank you that you understand all that. And we thank you that you remain God. And we thank you that you are not upset about what men think or what devils think. And we thank you that you're able to encourage us to keep going. We thank you that you enabled Jesus to keep on going, to be faithful unto death, and you raised him from the dead. We thank you that 
we have a hope that not even death can wipe out. So Lord, please write on our hearts and make this part of our lives that we can pray and not faint. And would you please encourage our hearts this week as we remember, at least I can pray, oh God, help me. In Jesus' name, help me. And give us the life we need. Do a great spiritual work in our life. And please take care of all the opposition that we face. Help us to walk with you. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.